Should we fear the teachings of Islam? What about the Islamic term jihad? What exactly does it mean to most Muslims? Today, you'll hear from an international expert, and you may be shocked at what you hear. This is Evidence and Answers with speaker and author Dr. Pat Zukarin. Today, Pat examines the notion of jihad in the Muslim world and what it could mean to every country on earth. This is a crucial and timely topic, and that's what we're all about at Evidence and Answers. When you get a chance, check out our website, evidenceandanswers.org, for resources on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Here's Pat Zukarin. All right, thanks a lot, Kevin. We're hearing a lot in the media about Islam. In fact, as we speak, there's been a large march on the capital of Washington, D.C., marched by many Islamic groups to promote Islam as a religion of tolerance and peace. In Hawaii on September 24th, it was celebrated as Islam Day in Hawaii. Well, should we be concerned about the rapid growth and influence of Islam in America? Is it a religion of tolerance and peace as portrayed in much of the media? Well, here to help us on this topic is Dr. Robert Spencer. Dr. Robert Spencer is the director of Jihad Watch, a program of the David Horowitz Freedom Center and the author of nine books on Islam and Jihad, including New York Times bestseller, The Truth About Muhammad and The Politically Incorrect Guide to Islam. He writes on topics that few want to write on, and he tells it just like it is. He's led seminars on Islam and Jihad for the United States Central Command, United States Army Command, and General Staff College, the U.S. Army's Asymmetric Warfare Group, the FBI, the Joint Terrorism Task Force, and the U.S. Intelligence Community. He has a Master's of Arts in Religious Studies from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and has been studying Islamic theology, law, and history in depth for over 30 years. Well, Dr. Spencer, welcome to the show. Thank you. Very happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. Well, Dr. Spencer, let me begin by asking you this. Should we be concerned about the growth and influence of Islam in America and the West? Oh, yeah, no doubt about it. There are uh, Muslims here who are happy to be here because they're happy to be away from Islamic law and happy to be in a free society. But there's no doubt that there are other Muslims who are here because they want to bring Islamic law here, and they are hoping to destroy the American system and to replace it with a system that institutionalizes discrimination against women and non-Muslims and destroys the freedom of speech and the freedom of conscience. Now, many people listening will say, well, you're just exaggerating, you're just uh, an alarmist. What do you have to say to those people? Well, we've seen in the last week We've seen terror uh, plots uncovered in New York and Denver. That's one single plot that stretched between the two cities. Springfield, Illinois, and Dallas, Texas. And just today, just moments ago, at the uh, Los Angeles International Airport, two men were uh, taken off an airplane and uh, taken into custody after they were behaving suspiciously on the airplane. And the initial news report says that they were uh, of Middle Eastern descent, which makes it likely that here again is it was involving Islamic jihadists. And so the Islamic jihad is very much alive and operating in the United States, despite the fact that the uh, Obama administration has declared it over and that the... Uh, uh, law enforcement and mainstream media generally have uh, tended to consider that it was all an exaggeration by the Bush administration and so on. The uh, only people who don't seem to have gotten the message on that are the Islamic jihadists themselves. 
Now, many people will look and say, well, these are extremists. They're radicals. You can find them in any religion. This is just the minority group who have perverted the teachings of Muhammad and the Quran. This is just the minority group. Well, in reality, the teachings of Muhammad and the Quran are fully in line with what the jihadists do. The uh, Quran teaches that Muslims need to wage war against unbelievers in order to subjugate them under the rule of Islamic law. Muhammad, the prophet of Islam, taught the same thing. In my books, The Complete Infidel's Guide to the Quran and The Truth About Muhammad, I explore both of those sources and show that uh, they are not sources of peace and tolerance and understanding, but are actually just the opposite. Now, when you look at the truth of a religion, you look at the example that the founder set. So as Christians, we look at the example of Jesus and the disciples as to how they lived out the teachings. And as Islam, they look to the prophet Muhammad, who the Quran and the Hadith teach, is the perfect example whom all Muslims are to follow. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. The Quran says that Muhammad is the excellent example of conduct, and in Islamic law, he is exalted as such, as the, not only is the perfect example, but the perfect man himself, and is considered to be uh, exemplary to the extent that if Muhammad did it, it's good, and Muslims ought to behave in the same way. Now, the problem with that is that Muhammad was a warlord. He fought battles. Most of them were offensive. He had many wives. He, including a nine-year-old that he consummated the marriage with when he was 54. And so this is uh, uh, not really an example that we would say is a positive one in the United States today. Now, Muslim ap apologists will say, well, at the beginning of any religion, sure, they have to defend themselves uh, militarily. And that's simply what Muhammad did. But now that uh, Islam, you know, has spread those teachings on jihad don't necessarily apply, but when it began, they needed to defend themselves militarily back in those times. Well, you know, um, it's not true that every religion needs to defend itself militarily when it begins. Christianity was uh, uh, absolutely uh, illegal when it began, and there was no military action by Christians uh, ever exhorted or contemplated by any Christian leader. Uh, the uh, idea that uh, military action is a necessary part of a religion is actually held only by Muslims, who are the only religion that teaches that military action is consistent with the religious observance. Uh, certainly Christians have behaved in this way in the past, but this is not something that's justified by Christian teaching, nor is it something that is a constant of Christian history, precisely because it is not something that is justified by the teachings of Christ himself, whereas Muhammad exhorted Muslims to wage war against non-Muslims. The Quran teaches that they ought to, and this is a not remotely comparable to uh, the Christian teachings on these things. Now, what about the passages in the Quran that teach, you know, there is no compulsion in religion? Muslim apologists often claim that critics were only cherry-picking the violent passages of the Quran, but it is, it is a peaceful book. Well, there are peaceful passages in it. There aren't really actually all that many, but there are some. And so it is true that there are peaceful passages in the Quran, but it's not true that a Muslim is free to take the uh, peaceful passages and leave the rest. Uh, and uh, just pick the parts that he wants to emphasize. As a matter of fact, in, in Islamic theology, it is the violent passages that are considered to uh, take precedence over the peaceful passages. And there's a whole theology of abrogation that says that the violent passages 
uh, cancel out the peaceful ones, and the violent ones are the ones that apply at all times, whereas the peaceful ones are no longer in force. And so, unfortunately, in Islamic theology and law, it's, it's uh, just the opposite of the situation that a lot of Islamic apologists would like you to believe in the United States, that the peaceful passages are the ones that apply for all time, while the violent passages only applied to one particular time and place. Actually, the situation is just the opposite of that. According to the Muslim authorities who teach authoritatively what the meaning of the Quran is for Muslims within Muslim communities. Dr. Spencer, is there any such thing as a moderate Muslim? I mean, is it possible to be moderate on these things and try to uh, fall somewhere in between these passages, the peaceful passages and the not-so-peaceful passages? Uh, there certainly are moderate Muslims. There, there's no doubt there are millions, hundreds of millions of moderate Muslims, peaceful Muslims, people who would never kill non-Muslims, who have no interest in waging jihad against non-Muslims. They're just going about their lives, working their jobs, taking care of their families, and so on. The question is, do such people have a theological foundation within Islam? Do such people have a leg to stand on in terms of the Quran? And the, the answer to that is, unfortunately, no. There are moderate Muslims, but there is no moderate Islam. Uh, just as in the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church teaches that contraception is wrong, but survey after survey shows that most Catholics indeed use contraception, so it is in Islam. Uh, Islam, all the sects and schools of Islam, and the Quran and Muhammad all teach Muslims should wage jihad against infidels. Now, most Muslims are not waging jihad against infidels, but that doesn't mean that the teachings are no longer there. Dr. Spencer, you know, the Quran mentions several passages of jihad. You state that there are over a hundred passages of jihad. For example, uh, Surah 9, Surah of the Sword, you know, says things like, fight and slay the pagans wherever you find them and seize them, beleaguer them, and lie in wait for them in every stratagem. Now, many yeah. Muslims will say, well, uh, that's spiritual warfare, like Paul, you know, put on the spiritual armor of God and all that. That's what we're talking about, the fight for justice or the fight for freedom or equal rights. That's what it's talking about, not a militant kind of warfare. What do you have well, to say actually, to that? That's, not what, that's what Islamic apologists will tell non-Muslims, but that's not what Islamic authorities tell Muslims. Uh, just the opposite. As a matter of fact, if you uh, look at Muhammad's very first biographer, uh, Ibn Ishaq, who wrote in the 8th century, he was very clear that the violent passages of the Quran uh, take precedence over the peaceful ones and are applicable for all time. And they, it is offensive jihad that is the Quran's final word on warfare against unbelievers. And that these passages are uh, in force for the whole of human, ex human history, human existence, until the end of the world. And these things are not just, that's also not just the opinion of Ibn Ishaq, but also that of many, many others who um, have, have uh, taught on this throughout Islamic history and up to our own day. And it is a common theme, as a matter of fact, in Islamic theology, that there are three stages of development uh, in the Quran of the teachings on jihad warfare. Uh, first is tolerance. And the second is the uh, defensive warfare against those who are attacking Islam or are perceived to be attacking Islam. And the third is offensive warfare in order to establish the rule of Islamic law over non-Muslims. And the, that third stage of offensive jihad is the one that is uh, uh, taught generally in Islamic theological schools. 
as being the one that's applicable for all time. And so these Islamic apologists who say to you in the West that uh, these passages have no force today, unfortunately, they are not convincing the people they need to convince who are the ones who are teaching these things in Islamic mosques and schools there. And so the problem is that the majority of Muslims who go to these schools are learning just the opposite of what non-Muslims are being told in the West. And what about in the mosques here in the United States? Uh, are they teaching these kinds of things, or are they teaching more of a moderate kind of Islam? Um, three out of four mosques in the United States, according to a survey by the Mapping Sharia Project last year, are teaching uh, hatred of Jews and Christians and hatred of non-Muslims in general and the necessity to wage jihad against them. So we should be concerned, uh, you know, about uh, the rise of mosques here in the United States. Many, I understand, are funded by Saudi Arabia and around the world. Uh, mosques are funded by Saudi Arabia and Libya and other countries like this, aren't they? Yes, uh, the Saudis mostly. They've, they've spent billions in uh, spreading their version of Islam, which, of course, probably most people have heard of by now, Wahhabism. A lot of people think Wahhabism is the only kind of Islam that we need to be concerned about. Unfortunately, that's not the case. It's by no means true that Wahhabism is the only form of Islam that teaches warfare against unbelievers. But in any case, uh, yeah, they're bankrolling the spread of the jihad ideology and the revival of jihadist sentiments among Muslims around the world. Now, you state that the goal of Islam is to bring the world under the banner of Islam and institute Sharia law. Tell us a little bit about uh, Sharia law and why should we be concerned? Sharia law is the law of God, as far as Muslims are concerned. It is a law that is derived from the Quran, the Muslim holy book, and the Hadith, Islamic traditions about Muhammad's words and deeds. And the, uh, the, the rulings of Islamic law that are derived from Quran and Hadith by Islamic authorities and on which the schools of Islamic jurisprudence agree are generally considered to be uh, settled and authoritative and not to be questioned further and certainly not open to reform. And the most well-known features of Islamic law are the uh, denial of the freedom of speech, denial of the freedom of conscience, the denial of equality of rights of all people, the equality of rights of women with men, and the equality of rights of non-Muslims with Muslims. And so this is not a system that is compatible with the U.S. Constitution in any particular, but it is one that is unfortunately the subject of efforts by Muslims to bring it to the uh, United States, and that is something that was not even on the radar screen as far as law enforcement goes, because this, the law enforcement authorities have generally decided essentially that if Muslims are not working actively in terrorist groups, then they must be moderates and are not, uh, nobody needs to be concerned about them. And the idea that Muslims might be working to bring Islamic law here, Sharia law, and that Sharia law is incompatible with constitutional freedoms in many particulars, and that the effort to bring Sharia law here is one that is not compatible with the U.S. Constitution or with our freedoms, nobody really seems concerned about that. Dr. Spencer, it seems so far-fetched that Sharia law could in any way, shape, or form take root or get a foothold in, in America. But then when I look at the U.K., my eyebrows really go up. I mean, what can you tell us about uh, what is happening as far as Islam and the U.K.? Islam in the U.K., the jihad is far more advanced than it is here. And 
it is uh, uh, the sub in it in the UK now. There is an aggressive and assertive Islamic community that is uh, getting more and more demanding in terms of uh, working to to bring elements of Islamic law and to assert that uh, Muslims need not be subject to British law but that they can establish enclaves within the country and uh, essentially impose Islamic law there and not worry about the outside authorities. And this is something that is proceeding in various parts of Britain now. As a matter of fact, the home secretary of uh, Great Britain, he went to an area of East London, and he went into a Muslim area, and he started getting berated by a Muslim leader there who said, you have no right to come into our area. And he was directly refuting, contradicting the idea that there was British sovereignty over that area. Now, that's a matter of grave concern, because either the British crown is sovereign over the whole country, or it's not. Either Sharia law rules all of Britain, or it doesn't. But it, it, it's never this, the, the kind of half measures that are increasing because of the increasing influence of Islamic law in Britain, that's not going to solve anything, and it's only going to get worse. Dr. Spencer, I, I can't help but think that there's a spiritual component here as far as filling a spiritual void or vacuum with the demise of Christianity in the UK. Is there a possibility we're seeing Islam fill that void? Yes, I think there's no doubt about that. And uh, uh, it seems as if some of the British authorities even seem to be aware of that and don't mind it because they don't realize just how inimical the uh, Sharia law is to the Western view of the dignity of the human person and to freedoms that the West guarantees. And so they think that uh, Islam will fill the spiritual void and everything will be okay. It will stabilize the society. Uh, they're in for a rude awakening on that, of course. You know, Dr. Spencer, people out there listening once again are saying, well, you know, this whole idea of trying to bring a society under Sharia law is only the agenda of few of the radicals, not the majority of Islam. And so we're being alarmist here. Uh, what do you have to say to that? Well, uh, it's true that there might only be a few radicals who are actively pursuing Islamic jihad. But when they have the texts and teachings of Islam on their side, as they do, then it becomes a much larger problem because they can and do appeal to those texts and teachings and say, look, we represent real Islam. And they go into the Muslim communities and they say, we are the authentic Muslims. We're doing what the Quran says. We're doing what Islam teaches. And these other people are not, these peaceful moderate types, are not doing what the Quran teaches. They are not doing what Muhammad wants. And so we are the real authentic Muslims. And that means that uh, whenever anybody wants to get more serious about being about his religious observance in a muslim context he's especially vulnerable to this jihadist appeal and so it is uh, it may be a small number but they have claimed successfully the mantle of islamic authenticity in uh, the islamic community and have not been challenged in that by moderates so when we interpret the quran according to the laws of hermeneutics or the rules of interpretation when we look at the life of muhammad when we look at the life of his early followers, uh, when we look at the teachings of the Hadith and his biography, we discover that, uh, indeed, it's more consistent with what the jihadists teach than what the moderates would teach. Well, yeah, exactly. And that's why 
it is uh, uh, something that is more significant than just the numbers involved, that uh, the numbers involved of the people on either side. There, uh, in every religion, you know, you have people who are not, they can't be bothered, you know, they, they identify themselves as being a member of the religion, but otherwise their commitment is slight to whatever it teaches. And so it's not the same kind of thing. You can't just assume that because somebody calls himself a Christian that he adheres to every Christian teaching and that every other Christian agrees with him 100% about everything. And so it's the same thing in Islam. Islam teaches these things, and that doesn't necessarily mean that every Muslim does them, but the teachings are what they are. Now, some will say, well, look at the Crusades. You know, you have abuses in every religion, and that's simply what we have here. But the history of Christianity is very different from the history of Islam, isn't it? Yeah, and, uh, you know, a lot of people say, well, it's just that uh, Christianity was barbaric 600 years ago, and uh, Islam is 600 years younger than Christianity, and so Islam will be like Christianity is now in 600 years. And I think, well, great, except uh, that means we've got to deal with terrorism for 600 years. I don't know if we can survive that. But aside from that, even if you uh, grant this point, um, it assumes that the religions are essentially identical, and that therefore the development of Islam will be exactly the same as the development of Christianity. And there's no reason to assume that, especially since the religions don't teach the same things. Not by a long shot. They teach very different things. Uh, the, uh, the idea of love your enemies and turn the other cheek is, very, is, is diametrically opposed to Muhammad's idea that you should retaliate in kind for how you've been attacked and that you should um, uh, that you should fight against the unbelievers and be merciful to the fellow believers but be ruthless to those who are not in the fold. Yes, you know, we can point to the Bible and show where the Crusades were actually uh, going against the teachings of the New Testament and Jesus, but when you look at the jihadists, they're actually consistent with the teachings of the Quran. Exactly. And so that's a huge difference, that uh, if Christians committing violence in the name of Christianity were violating the teachings of Jesus, whereas the, uh, those who commit violence in the name of Islam are fulfilling what Muhammad says. Well, we just have a few minutes left, but uh, Dr. Spencer will be back with part two of this interview next week. Uh, Dr. Spencer, tell us a little bit about your group, Jihad Watch. Jihad Watch is, a, uh, it is an organization that is designed to getting the word out about what the jihadists are up to and why they are doing it. Uh, primarily, we are trying to shed light upon the ideology of the jihadists and to explain what it is they're doing and why and to uh, help to lead thereby to the formulation of more coherent and useful policies that will meet the challenge of the jihad in all its forms, rather than to miss so many of the forms of the challenge, as is currently the case. Many listening to this show, uh, how should they respond to the growing challenge of Islam here? Should they be concerned, and what can they do to meet this challenge? Ordinary people can do uh, is, in the first place, ordinary Christians can understand that this is a spiritual battle as much as a political one, and that this is a, a, a spiritual challenge to the church, and that it needs to be met as such. And likewise, they can understand that this is uh, something that there is the primary problem is that people don't recognize what the magnitude of the problem actually is, that they don't even realize what we're up against. And so somebody who understands 
that these things are the core of Islamic teaching and that there is uh, no form of Islam that does not teach warfare against unbelievers, then they need to start to try to alert other people. And that's the main thing, to try to raise awareness of this. And the proper policies will follow from the awareness. But if we don't have the awareness, we're never going to be able to make the right policy choices. For example, the state of Hawaii is celebrating Islam Day. And the reason they said is, is because we're a state of tolerance. We're a society of tolerance. Yes. And, exactly. And, and we want to celebrate the good things about all religions, including Islam. Uh, is that the a problem is that you're dealing with something that's radically intolerant. You know, you're dealing with a, uh, a, a, a system of law and pol- uh, a political system that, is, that does not tolerate any others to be equal with it. And so it is something that just uh, ultimately it's, it's a contradictory impulse. You know, we're tolerating something that will destroy this culture of tolerance. Our guest has been Dr. Robert Spencer, one of the leading voices and experts on Islam. His books you're going to want to get. And he's got a couple new books coming out, The Complete Infidel's Guide of the Quran. And his other bestsellers include The Truth About Muhammad and The Politically Incorrect Guide to Islam and the Crusades. I've read all many of his books. They're outstanding. You're going to want to get it. A great tool for the one of the... Uh, greatest challenges Western civilization faces today. So, Dr. Spencer, thank you, and we look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks very much. I look forward to it myself. Thank you so much for joining us for Evidence and Answers with Dr. Pat Zuckerman. We'll pick it up there next time as we continue our interview with Robert Spencer. It's our hope to keep a quality program on the air and on the web that presents an intelligent response to the issues of our day and intellectually considers spirituality. We hope to address issues like Islam's impact on spirituality and society in an honest and loving way. And we'd like you to join us. Please support us with your tax-deductible financial gifts. One of the ways you can do that is by purchasing our resources available at evidenceandanswers.org. You can download past shows on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, read Pat's articles, and purchase Pat's new book with Dr. Norman Geisler, The Apologetics of Jesus. It's all at evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. I'm Kevin Harris. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on Evidence and Answers.